Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First, April CPI numbers surpassed economists' expectations, and not in a good way. The CPI numbers then sent the stock and bond market on a bit of a ride. Why, and where did the week end up? And last but not least, Friday, we also got April retail sales numbers. How did they compare to March, and what do they tell us about the state of the economic recovery? After that, this week's deep dive is actually an interview about a topic I know we are all passionate about here, financial literacy, and more specifically, how we can get personal finance in every school across the country to improve financial equality, and more importantly, improve lives, families, and communities. Now let's dig into the major financial headlines of the week. Up first, the April CPI report. I'm starting with the consumer price index because these numbers had the most impact on overall market performance last week. All year, we have been tracking closely the indices for inflation as concerns about higher inflation have continued to increase. The consumer price index, also known as CPI, is one of these. And as you may recall, it measures the prices of a fixed basket of household goods and services. The CPI for April was released last week and for the second month in a row undoubtedly shows the inflation or rising prices that investors have been anticipating all year. But more than that, it was more than most experts expected as well. The release on Wednesday drove a widespread sell-off in the stock market. Overall, CPI increased by 4.2% over the last 12 months through the end of April versus what versus economist expectations of just 3.6%. This was driven by a 2.4% increase in food prices, a 25% increase in energy prices, which is all even before the impact of the colonial pipeline closure over the last week, and a 3% increase in all other goods and services. Prices are now rising across almost every single category the CPI tracks, though energy prices are clearly driving the biggest increase in the CPI overall. One category to note, used cars. Used car prices were up 10% in just the month of April alone, and up 21% over the last year. Why? The chip shortage has caused production halts at many major auto manufacturers, reducing the supply of new cars. If people can't buy new cars, they can't trade in their used cars, so the supply of used cars is impacted too. Reduced supply at the same time that demand is increasing, which is happening both from the economy just recovering, people getting back to driving to work, as well as those big lump sum stimulus payments received in March, and you have the perfect storm to drive double-digit price increases. Similar stories are playing out in many supply chain-impacted sectors. In addition to supply chain hiccups, 
Over most of 2020, weak energy comparisons served to offset increases in increasing prices in other sectors like food. But from here on forward, as long as energy prices remain where they are or increase, they will continue to serve as a tailwind, driving inflation higher. It's super important to realize that energy prices impact far more than just your utility bills or the gas you put in your car. It actually adds to the cost of almost every single consumer good due to the cost of transportation. As we look ahead, something important for you all to clearly understand. If prices do not change at all from the end of April and just hold steady, we will see another 4% increase in CPI number in May, and year-over-year CPI comparisons for the remainder of 2021 will be north of 2%. Despite these facts, the Fed continues to hold firm on accommodative monetary policy, believing the inflation we are seeing to be, and I quote, transitory. This means temporary and largely due to short-term supply chain issues as well as weak 2020 comparisons. Only time will tell if they are right. Now, how did that inflation report impact the markets? The CPI report came out Wednesday morning, and at the close on Wednesday, the S&P 500 had its third consecutive down day and was down more than 4% for the week, while the tech-heavy NASDAQ was down more than 5%. Why? Because higher inflation expectations mean higher interest rates. Interest rates were up across the board from two-year treasuries all the way to 30-year ones. Five, 10, and 30-year treasuries all ended the day Wednesday up by 10 basis points, or 0.1%, more than the week prior. And higher interest rates negatively impact the stock market as it creates a higher cost of capital, which lowers valuation ratios, or the multiplier that investors apply to company earnings. Interest rates moderated a bit over the rest of the week, and the stock market recovered some, but still ended the week down 1.4% overall, even as we wrapped up Q1 earnings season, with companies collectively reporting the highest quarterly earnings growth in more than a decade. The area of the market that stands out most from last week? The 10-year Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, or TIPS spread, versus 10-year Treasuries, a predictor of inflation, ended the week at over 2.5%, the highest it has been since 2013, when the Fed also continued to promote accommodative monetary policy. Finally, Friday, the Census Bureau released advanced retail sales for April. Why do these matter? They give us the first indication each month of how consumer spending is doing, and recall that consumer spending represents 70% of our overall economy. The comparisons against March were steep, because March was boosted by the third round of stimulus checks that went out that month. April retail sales were flat versus March. But if you zoom in at the most recent data, you can see how stimulus checks boosted January spending above the long-term trend line. February was a return to reality, and another round of stimulus checks in March boosted sales again. The fact that they held steady in April is being viewed by some as the economy standing on its own though we also know that savings rates were extremely elevated in March, as well as over much of the last year, 
so households have some pockets to reach into. But nevertheless, it's a good sign and potentially a sign of that pent-up demand we've been waiting for. And it did help the stock market rally to recover some of the week's losses. If we dig into categories, while overall retail sales were flat from the month prior, retail excluding restaurants was down 0.3%, while auto was up 2.9% and restaurants were up 3%. The year-over-year comparisons are extreme, given April 2020 was the height of lockdown and most consumer-facing businesses were shut down entirely. Now it's time for this week's deep dive, and I know it's a topic of great interest to all of us because it's one of the areas I get questions or comments about almost daily. You all say, I wish I had learned this when I was in school, or how do I make sure my kids learn what I didn't about finance? The good news? The way to address both of these is simple. Personal finance classes in every high school in America. But as with so many things when it comes to education, while the answer is simple, making it happen is far from it. Today, I want to introduce you all to Tim Renzada, the co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. NGPF is a nonprofit that is breaking down these barriers in public education to make it possible for free, one teacher in high school at a time, with the goal of every student graduating with a personal finance class in high school by 2030. Well, hey, Tim, I'm really excited to have you today on Family Finance Moms Finance Explained podcast. Um, I know that we have a joint passion for financial literacy, and um, my followers do too, so I'm sure they're excited to hear from you as well. Before we get started, can you just tell me a little bit about the organization that you started, NextGen Personal Finance, you know, why you started it, how it began, and where you guys are at today? Sure. Thanks, Megan. It's great to be here. Um, I'll start with the origin story. Yeah, so it was about a decade ago, I visited a high school in a neighboring community in East Palo Alto, California, and was so enamored of the program, I asked the founder of the school how I could help. He said, well, I'd love to have a personal finance program for our summer bridge program. So I said yes, and then found out later that would involve 25 hours of a 25 hour course with three sections of ninth graders. And again, I'm coming from more of an entrepreneurial background than an education background. So that course, putting that course together kind of changed the trajectory of my life because I saw how engaged young people were in learning about money. And then the big surprise came when I started getting emails from parents who were asking for budgeting advice or wanted to start investing for retirement. I recognized the fact that if you can, if you do a great job in the classroom, it can have spillover effects. Um, so that, that inspired me three years after I started teaching to, to start NextGen Personal Finance and with the goal of being all kids should have access and should complete a one semester personal finance course before they leave high school. It's such a no brainer. Every survey in the world from parents to students to teachers says it should be so. And so I wanted to kind of commit the back half of my career to, to making that happen. That, that's such a good point. And you know, it is something that obviously you and I believe in it deeply 
so many people and parents out there believe in it deeply too. So if so many of us believe that it's important and we're behind it, why isn't it that personal finance is mandated and more widely adopted in public schools today? Yeah, so I think there's a psychological issue and then there's a structural issue. Uh, psychologically, inertia is one of the most powerful forces in the universe, and it's a lot easier to just keep things the way they are um, than to change them. And then I think the second piece is, is structural. It is hard to create change within uh, the educational system. And so there's a lot of competing interests. Um, if we're going to add personal finance, what are we going to take out? If we're going to add personal finance, where is it going to fit in the schedule? Um, there's a lot of resistance to kind of changing that. And so that's the glass half empty view. The glass half full view is that there are 1,500 schools across the country where somebody in that school community, a teacher, a parent, a student, a board member, a principal, a member of the business community, somebody stood up and said, this is important. Let's make it happen. And so these are school communities where, you know, grassroots efforts led to every student graduating with a one semester personal finance course. So I think parents have a much stronger voice than they might believe because we hear the impact of a parent standing up at a board meeting and saying, we should do this. And the reason I created my organization and everything we do is done at no cost to schools is because I wanted to eliminate the resistance of, well, it's gonna cost us money. And so a, a parent or a teacher can stand up at a board meeting and say, there, is a, there are nonprofit providers out there that can provide a full semester course along with professional development to, to train teachers at no cost. So as my, <laughs> as my departed mom always used to say growing up, where there's a will, there's a way. And the cool thing about it is this is happening. And we've seen through, you know, we've seen over the last two years, because we study this in depth, basically the number of those schools, and we call them gold standard because, you know, the gold standard is every student when they cross the graduation stage has taken a one semester course, is those, the number of those schools has almost doubled, you know, from a little over 800 to 1500 in the last two years. So there is a movement happening. That, that's awesome. Will you talk a little bit more about, I know you mentioned everything you provide is free to the end user. Um, will you talk a little bit more about what exactly you're providing? Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, there's often, when I'm talking to teachers about personal finance, there's often the, what's the catch? In fact, we used to do in-person sessions prior to COVID. And somebody came up to me after one session and asked me if we were selling timeshares. <laughs> um, but no, we, uh, we have an endowment to fund our, fund our organization. I was fortunate in some of my earlier business ventures and through investing um, to be in a position to be able to fund the organization. So what Which do we provide? Incredible. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I can't imagine a better investment from my own perspective to, to know that the work that our team is doing and the work of the community is you know, putting the next generation in a much better position financially. So we do three things. Um, we do, we provide curriculum. So, and we want it to kind of be all things to all people. So when folks come to our website, they see, you know, you can kind of turnkey solution for a semester course. 
Maybe you only have nine weeks though. So we have a nine week course. Maybe you have a full year. So we offer a full year course, or maybe you already have a curriculum and you just want to piece together some supplemental resources. So for example, we have games. Our games are played over 5 million times a year because um, we know, you know, students engage, especially when they don't have experience with specific um, specific financial products like investing maybe like we need to engage them through game playing and the power of the games we have is that while the game playing is great it's the conversation and discussion that really cements the learning that takes place from those games so that's the curriculum side of the house the second piece is professional development because what we find is personal finance is not being taught in ed schools and so often the person teaching the course has not had formal instruction or taken a, a course in personal finance. So we're kind of doing, providing that training on the fly. And starting March of last year, we pivoted our entire professional development, development model to go online. And what we see is just an incredible, almost insatiable hunger that teachers have to really participate in this professional development. So since March, of last year, March of 2020, teachers, over 6,000 teachers have done over 135,000 hours of professional development. And what we know is- Through, through, building, next, through next gen personal finance or in general? Yeah, through next gen personal finance. Yeah. That is inc that's incredible. Yeah, and so we do one hour virtual PDs, you know, stop in anytime. We do eight of those every week. We do certification courses, which are more in depth, 10 hour courses spread out over several weeks. And then the third piece is on demand, which basically you can do on your own schedule at your own pace. And we have about 26 of those modules now. So we want to reach teachers. We want it to be convenient to them, but they tell us over and over again, they wanna build their content knowledge, that increases their confidence, that makes them better teachers. And then the third piece, it leads them to be advocates because we see it time and time again, we provide $10,000 grants to schools that make a commitment for all students to get a personal finance course. And that, you know, in the last 12 months, about 140 schools reaching over 125,000 kids have made that commitment where the board has said, usually at the urging of the school community to enable all students to, to take that course. So our integrated model, our belief is that if you provide teachers with engaging curriculum that students love, you provide them, provide them with the professional development to increase their confidence, that that just feeds into the third piece, which is advocating, stepping up and saying, this is important and I'm gonna work hard to, I'm not going to say I'm not going to sit down until you say yes. And we just have really inspiring stories of teachers, you know, spending 10, 15 years fighting for this and then getting it to happen. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, knowing that there's this incredible movement out there. Well, and I think you've, you've removed all the barriers. You've removed all the excuses. You know, it's no longer, well, how much is this going to cost us? And how long is it going to, I mean, you're basically, you've removed the cost barrier you've removed the content barrier by providing the content and you've set up the program to train the teacher to enable them to deliver it. So it's it's kind of a one-stop solution for something that there's a lot of, like people want this to happen. Um, and now you've given them the tools to make it happen, which is really, really cool. Um, I have an opening in the marketing department, Megan. Um, you've just <laughs> kind of, that was our goal. I mean, when I, when I go back to some of our early, 
the early days, we wanted to be the one-stop shop. That was our goal because what happened, what we found early on was teachers felt overwhelmed because it's a bit like the wild west out there when it comes to mm -hmm. curriculum. There's everybody wants to get in the classroom from financial service firms who create resources uh, to nonprofits to for-profits. There's no shortage of content. And the problem is they all do one piece of it well. And so teachers were having to cobble together curriculum. We wanted to make their job easier. And, and folks often say, well, it's gotta be easy. You know, there's a simple reason why you've grown so fast is because you're free. And I say, well, no, because everybody's free in this space. And what's not free is teacher time. Mm -hmm. And so for teachers, we recognize that teachers, the scarcest resource for teachers is time. Yep. So if we can make their lives simpler by putting the curriculum in a form that makes it easy for them to just take it from our website, load it into their learning management system, Google Classroom, and they're off to the races. And that that really makes a difference. So you've really grown next-gen personal finance and gotten it into schools kind of from the ground up as opposed to going kind of state by state and trying to get it adopted we talked a little bit about that um, in our prior conversation. Can you kind of explain the hurdles? Because I think a lot of people don't understand what it actually takes to change curriculum in schools, like why it's so hard. Will you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. One of the most <laughs> valuable meetings I had, and it, it was a disappointing meeting at the time, but I realized it set us on this path of kind of going, uh, growing the organization one teacher at a time. So I went and visited the district office here in town, one of the top districts in the state, said, hey, I'm starting a nonprofit. Uh, we have a personal finance curriculum. What are you guys doing in the district here? And I kind of got a little pat on the head and was sent to talk to the assistant curriculum director who then proceeded to tell me that it would be at least a year before it got on the board agenda. And then from there, who knew uh, where it was gonna go? So that immediately, I walked out of that meeting disappointed, but also resolute that I would not be spending time trying to go top down, selling to districts or selling to states. But instead, if your product is good and teachers like it, it spreads like wildfire when it comes to word of mouth. And so seven years later, 46,000 teachers have signed up for teacher accounts on our website. And we really have not gotten district adoption. This has kind of been total grassroots, total bottoms up. You know, half of our new teachers come through word of mouth, the other, 30, 40% come from uh, website searches. So we produce a lot of content uh, that the, you know, that Google tends to capture. And so people find us that way too. And you talked a little bit about this before about making teachers advocates, but you have a ton of resources on um, ngpf.org that empower parents and anybody who wants to be an advocate for this to, you know, if you want this in your kid's school, you have resources to help parents do that. Can you talk to what some of those are and you know how parents might be able to navigate that? Sure, yeah, so that's on the advocacy uh, part of our website, so that's uh, ngpf.org forward slash advocacy. And so we have what we call the Mission 2030 Playbook. So again, the guiding vision for the organization is that in nine years, by the year 2030, 100% of students who graduate from high school will take a personal finance course. We're at about 20% now, so we've got a little bit of ground to cover. Um, but what you will find in that playbook is you'll find research studies, because there'll still be some people out there saying, well, we're not really sure this works. Well, the good news there is 
all of the recent research continues to point to the impacts, the positive impacts of financial education from increasing credit scores to reducing the amount of student debt that folks are taking out to reducing the, the usage of high interest loans like payday lending after taking a personal finance course. The data just continues to grow. So we arm you with, here's the recent research studies. We have a board deck. Um, so the extent you're ready to go to the board of education uh, in, your, uh, in your school, in your district, you have the ability to kind of, we have a, a template for you to use and to kind of sell the major points. We have documentation around hurdles, like we've heard it all in terms of why this can't be done. We actually like to flip the script a little bit. And rather than say, we really urge you to have it, we like to turn it and say, how can you withhold this essential course for the young people in your school? And I think kind of changing, and the other thing we, the other verbiage, because I think words really matter is we don't talk about mandates and requirements. We talk about guarantees. Are you willing to guarantee that every one of your students will get access to a personal finance course? So it's a process. Um, and okay, so the other uh, two other things I'll just mention that can be powerful incentives for district or principals to meet with you. And that is, you know, we have two grant programs. So if your school doesn't offer a course today, we have something called Mission 2025, which is will provide $1,000 grants to schools that add an elective to personal finance. Because we know it's a process. You don't go from zero to 100. You don't go from not having a course to having every student take the course. And so our belief is, or what we've seen over time, is you start with an elective course. You establish a beachhead. And the teacher teaching it gets fired up. And suddenly, there's a wait list. And one section becomes two sections, becomes four sections. And then over time, suddenly 50 60% of the graduates are taking a personal finance course and then it's a much easier lift to get to 100%. So we have grant programs, a $10,000 grant for districts that commit to all students. And so we find that by offering these small grants, it, it provides the impetus for a meeting. Hey, there's this nonprofit that has a grant program. Let's sit down and talk about how we can get access to these funds. And, and how are like, if your content is all being provided for free, what is that grant money? Like how are schools using that grant money to implement the program? That's a great question. Um, I think they're being really creative about, because there isn't, you know, we encourage them not to buy curriculum. So, you know, it may be sending several teachers to a national conference. Okay. Because um, what we find is, yeah, that can be a really powerful event in terms of firing people up that there's, hey, there's this tribe of people out there that are just as passionate as you are. Uh, field trips, you know, going to visit the Federal Reserve um, in a city near you or going, if you're near, in the New York City area, kind of going Stock to Stock exchange. Exactly. Or, or even seeding an actual uh, mini endowment. That's, that's what fired me up about finance, only it didn't happen until college. Um, yeah. You actually and get to play with real money. It, it, becomes far more interesting. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. One of my, yeah, one of the things I haven't figured out yet that I would love to is exactly that. How do we create investment clubs across the country? And it's it's challenging because of the bureaucracy, because of the rules. How do we get money, you know, and how do we get money to students so they can invest? Because I, I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's an abstraction, especially in families. You know, half of America doesn't invest in the stock market. 
Mm-hmm. So I can talk about it in class, but until you actually do it, it's, it is an abstraction. Yeah. And one, one last thing, Tim, while I have you here, you started at the beginning talking about how powerful this is, not only for the students who get the class, but for their parents too. Um, and the, how it kind of changes the game. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I, when I tell adults what I do for a living, (laughs) I get one of two responses and sometimes, um, sometimes both responses. One is that's a class I wish I had. And the second is if they have any children, uh, can you teach my children also? Um, so what you recognize is, yeah, there is a lot of financial. So, you know, I don't like the word financial literacy or illiteracy. I, I like to think of it as capability. Literacy seems too basic. And I think literacy also seems to be, okay, if you understand the definitions, you're good. There's clearly a lot more to this. There's psychology, there's application. Um, so in terms of parents, you know, again, we, we see teachers who will ensure that young people are having conversations with their parents about money. So homework assignments, um, research, interview your parents, um, play this game payback, which is a game about going to college, play that game with a parent. So we're trying to come up with as many different strategies because it's, it's often taboo. You know, what we hear is that parents would rather talk about sex with their children than money. Um, And we know sex is taboo also. So we're trying to break down those barriers and make it part of the conversation. And we know young people get really excited talking about it. And we hear that these conversations are happening more, more and more. We see teachers sending home newsletters to parents just to highlight, here's what was covered in our class. And the feedback they, the teachers get is just phenomenal. And then I'll, I'll just tell you one story about one of my students, David, who um, the, the evening of the, the class session that day was focused on investing. And I got an email from him um, saying his father hadn't started saving for retirement and was interested in this investing thing. And through a series of meetings that I had with David's father, we set up an account firm. We talked about um, different investment options, including index funds. And the story ends, well, the story continues, but a real milestone was we walked into a brokerage um, and he set up an IRA and made his first investment. And his son was sitting next to him. And so guess who I hear from all the time who has started investing and that's, that's his son. And so when you see kind of this, multi-generational impact that this has and multiply that across you know school communities across the country because the other thing I should mention is there's very it's a very unequal playing field around access to financial education so absolutely one in one in five students nationwide but when we go into communities of color or we go into communities of lower income communities it's about one in 13 or one in 14 and so it's um, the people that need the information the most that are most disadvantaged that have the least amount of access to it. And that's exactly why I started Family Finance Mom. And I think that's kind of where, you know, our paths collide because we see that we recognize it and we're doing everything we can to try to fix it. Um, And I think what you're doing is incredible. I think the progress you've made is awesome. Um, And I hope my followers check out 
uh, ngpf.org. There's a ton of resources. Uh, and you know, if your district doesn't have a financial literacy course already, um, you can be the advocate that makes it happen. And your resources remove any excuse that a district should have as to why they don't. And I think, you know, I hear from followers every day that nobody says that they wish they hadn't learned to be more financially literate. Everybody says, I wish I learned this sooner. Everybody says, how do I teach my kids what I didn't know? Um, and this is how we do it. One, one school at a time, one teacher at a time, one family at a time. So um, thank you so much, Tim, for your time and for sharing your story with us and your resources that you've created. Um, so thanks. Thank you, Megan. And you, yeah, for all your listeners out there, you have a lot of power. You can make a difference. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more gratifying than knowing that the work that you do to bring personal finance into your school community doesn't just have a one-year effect. You know, it has an incredible ongoing effect in really changing the trajectory of people's lives. Yeah, so it's, it's life-changing and generational changing for sure. That's it for this week's deep dive. I imagine none of you would be here if you didn't already believe in the power of financial literacy and know from your own lived experiences that access to it is far from equal. Personal finance classes in high school nationwide could change that. But in case you need some further convincing or want to arm yourself with more facts to be an advocate in your community and make it happen, I've linked up in today's show notes a whole bunch of research and stats about how kids learn, or in most cases don't learn, about personal finance today. This week should be a relatively quiet one for the markets, at least in terms of planned events and data releases. You can look for the weekly jobless claims, mortgage rates, and Fed balance sheet data on Thursday, and on Friday we'll get an update on the housing market with existing home sales for April. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom as I share and chat about all these measures with you as they are released. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. <laughs>